Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for staying and for, I'm sure most of you do know Brett Dean, but for those of you who don't know Brett, this is Brett Dean, a fantastic composer. Uh, and one of the reasons, before we get into um, dialogue, that I, I really wanted him to, to join me tonight is because uh, he's just written uh, a concerto for me, which we will be talking about, which is sort of a companion to the Emperor Concerto. It's a, it's a, I would say, a response to the Emperor Concerto, which in fact borrows quite uh, generously from the Emperor Concerto. So I, I thought it would be a particularly um, sort of uh, good time to have this chat with him. But actually what I'd love to talk about first, if you don't mind, is just having just sat and listened to sort of five sonatas over a span of a few decades, which I mean, to me, one of the things that's so striking about them is how, other than the personality, there, there's so little in common between them, how the, the variety of expression is so enormous. So as a composer, like from a compositional point of view, do you see a through line? And if so, what is it? Or? Um, I think the, the, the strength of the different characters is astonishing. Yeah. And so whilst um, one perhaps perceives a through line, it's hard to know whether that's really there or whether we just imagine it because it's all the one composer because they are such different voices. But the thing that does strike me again and again and a astonishing playing and a great, great performance and, and a thrill to be here. And the thing that, that does strike me is, is just what a complete um, personality he presented right from the outset. And so he's 22 and just, you know, puts, puts that down there. Uh, I mean, the only, the only similar experience I've had with his music is as a string player playing the early string trios, which already from Opus 9, yeah. which can only be a couple of years later. Particularly the, opus the, the, the big one is Opus 3 even, is yeah, it? Yeah, there are the, Opus 3, but then yeah. the, the Opus, uh, the, the later ones, including the C minor, is just astonishing. astonishing. Yeah. It sounds at times like some of the moments of the late quartets. Yeah. But it, it is that just that incredible sort of um, presence. But, but throughout, through all of these different um, styles and, and phases of his life, the fact that um, expression and technique were not fighting with one mm -hmm. another, that they, they were always expanding on one another. Expression wasn't to the detriment of technique mm. or vice versa. And so that they they were all working towards the same the same ends. Is that something as a composer that you sometimes you feel that there is a tension between expression and technique? Look, I think speaking as a composer in, in nowadays, you do get the sense that that aspects of virtuosity are kind of frowned upon, and mm. and you do notice that it's very hard to then write fast music or technically challenging music without it sort of working into a mechanical aspect or something. And that's why it's just then so inspiring to then yeah. reacquaint oneself with this personality and, and, and this approach where, where the two are very much linked. And also yeah. then by the end, it's... Yeah. You know, it's with its Bachian overtones of, of counterpoint as well, then the synthesis of, of technique, not only instrumental technique, but compositional technique yeah. is, is just so complete. I feel that so often when I play Beethoven that it is, of course, extremely difficult, but you feel that the difficulty is part of the is part of the, the basic fundamental nature of the music, that, you know, you don't want 
usually Mozart to sound difficult, even though it also is. But if you hear a performance of Beethoven that sounds effortless, something's essential element of it is probably missing. Yeah, and I mean, slightly heretical to say that there are moments in Mozart where I do find, and and even in a wonderful great work like the Sinfonia Concertante, the the development section of the first movement, is is difficult because there's a slight kind of working through of yeah, of material, yeah. and um, there may well be examples of that 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 uh, you find in in Beethoven as well, but but not tonight. That's no, for sure. I mean right from the, not the first chronological, but the first song that I played. The development of the first movement of the Pastoral is is just so completely miraculous. The way he gets stuck on this F-sharp major, I guess it's a dominant of the B minor, but I mean, for, it's something like 45 bars. I mean, yeah. the obsessive quality of it is so extreme. And then with these three tiny phrases, like nothing, he finds his way back. I mean, again, the, the sense of invention and of, I don't want to say manipulation of the material, but, but the, struggling with it and working it out and doing something essential to it. Unlike, I know what you mean about Mozart, that sometimes you think it's being just, it's going through a few, you know, and a bit of an automatic process. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, so many but, times it's not. I mean, yeah, who am I to say? But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that obsessive aspect is also then for, for me as the orchestral player that I have been for so much of my life, that's also what was so striking the very first time I ever played. For those of you who don't know, Brett was uh, violist in the Berlin Philharmonic for how, how many years? 15, Fifteen years. And actually one of my very first... Um, appearances in the viola section was with Carrion um, playing the Ninth Symphony, but also in a re- recording session of, of all of the overtures. And, you know, th- this this unbelievable power, this muscular aspect of then playing it in, in, that, in that orchestra, fairly fresh out of college and from Australia and so on, it was, it was absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that... There's something unbelievable about being an individual playing this music, which is so massive in scope and in imagination and having to produce it all on your own. But it must be really an extraordinary thing to be in the middle of it, you know, when there's a hundred people or however many. Yeah, conversely, I, I mean, the, the thought of, of doing all of that all on your own is, for me as a viola player, quite daunting. And <laughs> thankfully, we're not asked to do solo recitals all that often. Um, <laughs> But it is, you know, there's, there's this amazing sort of adversarial aspect of the solo sonata, which I just love as, yeah. a, as a spectator. <laughs> and I think, again, that adversarial quality suits him so much, I think. Absolutely. That's why I don't yeah. know that there's... I mean, there are other composers that I probably do love as much as Beethoven, but I'm not sure there's anyone else who I'd, I'd be so inclined to do a single evening of all mm. their music. You yeah, know? the single evening is, is a telltale sign of yeah. where tropes might emerge. And as you said right from the outset, they, they don't emerge in that, in that way that you often feel from, from other composers. But, I mean, obviously then Beethoven, as you say, it's, has been a central part of your life and, and, and hence then the, the commissioning process of five pieces to... Uh, yeah accompany in a way or be commentaries upon the five Beethoven concertos. I mean, I remember when you first approached me about it and then I was reading a bit more about the project as it was starting to unfold, you you said something along the lines of, 
every musician has to confront yeah. Beethoven one way or another. I mean, I just would love to hear a bit more about yeah, how you came I, to this idea. Yeah, I, I think, first of all, I came to just really for my own feelings about him. Because, you know, I remember very, very well the first time I heard music by Mozart, who I don't love any less than Beethoven. I remember, I remember being five and hearing the clarinet quintet. I remember exactly the effect that it had on me with the second theme, which is already so beautiful, then reappears in minor. I, I really do remember it. I, mean, I don't remember much from when I'm five, but I remember that. Mm. Um, but my first memories of Beethoven have this kind of visceral quality of like, again, I think that sense of confrontation was something that I felt immediately. I, mean, I remember hearing the Appassionato when I was probably 11 or 12 and, and, and just being shocked that music could do that. Mm. And I think... I feel like I could approach, I could have approached a composer, a really good one, a composer who I respected a lot, and said, will you write a piece that had, it was in some way a commentary on a Mozart concerto? And I could have imagined them saying, you know, I don't really know that I have anything to say about these pieces. And I wouldn't have been shocked. But I kind of would have been shocked if someone, someone had said, I don't really think the Beethoven, Beethoven's music concerns me. Mm. You know, I think that would have really, really taken, I would have been very taken aback by it because I think no matter what your approach is, no matter um, what style you write, and I would just think that he's one of those, those hinges in musical history, that everything would have been different without him. And therefore, I, I sort of thought everyone will probably have something to say and it'll probably be very personal to each of the five people. So that was kind of the appeal from my side. Yeah, I mean, uh, that resonated very strongly with me. And, and I remember actually, it must have been maybe last year in the proms or sometime recently, I remember hearing a, uh, a comment by Tom Addis, who was then conducting a concert on the radio, who talked about, he was doing Stravinsky, and he talked about Stravinsky in, in sort of terms, in similar terms, in being, for the 20th century, yeah. the main railway station through which all lines passed mm -hmm. and you had to change there. Yeah. And Beethoven, beyond, not only in the, in the 19th century or late 18th, 19th centuries, but also beyond, was very much that figure too for, for, for music history, absolutely. And, and therefore, you know, there, there are, you can't ignore him. Uh, I, I, I find the story of the genesis of your piece really interesting. So I, I, I would love it if you would tell the audience a little bit about where the, the idea first came from and how the piece began to come together. Yeah, so um, it bears a subtitle. It's called Piano Concerto, but it bears the subtitle Gneixendorfer Musik. Um, and Gneixendorf is a village in Lower Austria, it's about nowadays with, by car, it's about an hour outside of Vienna. Um, but in those days, it must have been an overnight trip by carriage. Um, and I was in the area as a guest of the uh, Grafenegg Festival and was driving, wanting to go and check out the, the town of Krems, which is a beautiful walled town on the Danube and noticed a sign pointing to Beethoven House Gneixendorf. And I hadn't heard of a Beethoven House Gneixendorf at that stage. And, and we found then a seemingly still active um, farmhouse of two or three storeys, um, a fairly small holding, Nobody around, uh, and eventually an old woman came to the door and 
we explained that we'd followed the signs and she beckoned us in, took us up onto the first floor, unlocked the door to a, an antechamber that then led on to a suite of three rooms, which is where Beethoven spent a critical and significant time in his life, towards the end of his life. So we're talking September to beginning of December in 1826. Um, he went there to this village to visit and stay with his brother Johann and take with him his nephew Karl, who was a troubled young man, uh, son of, of the other brother Karl or Caspar, uh, who'd already passed away. Karl had already um, attempted suicide and that's why they had to actually leave town and go somewhere else. So they went to visit Johann they stayed at Johann's place, but within a few days, they didn't get on, and, and so Ludwig was thrown out, and so he, he then found lodgings in this house down the road. It then became this kind of major turning point in his later life, because also the, the journey back to Vienna um, ended up resulting in a, in a severe pneumonia. He, he travelled back in very cold conditions at the beginning of December of that year in an uncovered carriage. And it was basically that final illness from which he never really recovered. Um, he did work while he was there. He wrote the Opus 135 Quartet. Uh, he did the metronome markings and corrections of the Ninth Symphony. It was a pivotal time. And these rooms are also still in very much in their original condition with hand-painted wallpaper and, and uh, decorations on the ceiling and so on. It was, it was really remarkable. It was like being a place frozen in time. And so whilst my piece is then also a comment upon the Emperor Concerto, which dates from 1811 or 12... Private life in his biography was much later, and 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 so on. But he, the the emperor, of course, was also as a, as a result of his worsening health situation. Above all, his his deafness. It was the one concerto he wasn't able to premiere himself, and marks also that beginning of the end in a way, or the ushering in of the the, the later the later period. I mean, also that Opus 90 sonata oh, is know, just astonishing. What is more, more moving than that? Yeah. And, and what is more remarkable than when you're always told that he's the, the heroic, angry composer, that when he belies or, or, or goes, comes out a different yeah. door, we, we don't quite know what to make I of it. I find that in very different ways. Both of these sonatas in the second half show the vulnerability of Beethoven in such an incredible yeah, way. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of that part of his story in, in the Gneixendorf story, and, and so it was a way of somehow unifying these various aspects yeah. of what has made him special for me. A question which I actually don't think I've asked you, which I'm curious about, because the, the piece ultimately has, it has some literal quotations, and it has a lot of music that clearly derives from, mm. from the emperor and from occasionally from other uh, works of Beethoven. Um, is that what you thought would be the case when you first started thinking about the piece, or was that something that evolved as you were working on it? Yeah, that's it. Uh, actually, when I started, I really, I wasn't going to mm -hmm. go there. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, I mean, I had a, had a copy of the score of the Emperor Concerto, and I then opened it to check out 
a kind of balance issue at one point. You know, what does he do when he's, he's still got the piano going, but he really wants muscle from the orchestra as well? What mm -hmm. kind of forces does he use and how does he use them and that sort of thing? And, of course, then I spent some time listening also to Leon Fleischer's wonderful yeah. recording with, with Cell and the Cleveland Orchestra, which also was recorded in the year of my birth in uh. 1961. So that was also fascinating. And, and a person that I then met a couple of years ago at Marlborough. At, yeah. at and, um, and then it was kind of like falling into this Beethoven vortex and I couldn't get myself entirely <laughs> out of it. So, you know, he, his music started sort of spiriting its way into my piece. And then I kind of found in the same way that you'd set through the, the sort of um, nature of the, the commission, it, it needs to be a piece that fits the same resources, yeah. or size of orchestra and so on. In the same way that, you know, there's, there's aspects of limitation to the orchestration, which is often a fascinating and great challenge right. for a composer. There's nothing quite like limitation to kind of yeah. push against. But so too I was then fascinated by the idea of the limitation of trying to write a piano part for a, you know, a piano concerto that's being premiered in 2020 that nevertheless could or somehow logically comes out of 18, 1811. Yeah. That is, you know, to say it's it sort of within a yeah. kind of Beethovenian framework realm. Realm, yeah. 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 Ah, it's very interesting. Um, so... The, you, what you just said kind of suggests a question to me. You know, you're talking about sort of Beethoven sort of taking up residence mm. as you were working on it. And I, um, I've definitely Free found... Free charge, too. He <laughs> paid no rent. I mean, for, yeah. you know, if you read the letters, it's typical. Um, I, you know, obviously I've been spending my whole life with his music, but I mean, this year it's, it's you know, yeah. you know, I'm eating and sleeping and drinking Beethoven. You know, I can't, it, it's never out of my head. Yeah. And it's one, it's the, it's the greatest gift of my life, but it's also, it's not easy. He's not easy to live with. Mm. You know, he, he, um, That's he's, what he's demanding. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I definitely, I feel like the personality is so enormous that sometimes I want, like, is there room for me mm. left, you know, in the room? Um, and I'm wondering if, as a composer, if you had any of the same kind of experience um, when he was sort of so involved in the writing process. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as I, what I just described is a bit of that, for yeah. sure. He, he gets in there and he takes hold and he won't let go. I mean, at some point you then kind of have to push him away and, yeah. and remember that it's still supposed to be yeah. one's own concerto. Um, but... but also for me, as as both player and composer, he's been there yeah. right from the start. And uh, in fact, my first my first ever orchestral memory. That testament. Yeah. Uh, well, no, even as a player, as oh. a kid, my first orchestral experience was in a, in a very junior youth orchestra in Brisbane. Was right. was the slow movement of the first symphony. Um, but yeah, the first the first piece of mine that that sort of really goes there is. Is testament, yeah. um, but he's sort of yeah he's knocked on the door several times. I mean, there is an earlier piece of mine called Pastoral Symphony, which often gets yeah. played alongside yeah. this other guy's Pastoral Symphony. <laughs> um, the, the other pastoral, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily um, relate specifically, although it does end in kind of ends in F, but that's more um, coincidence than the, design. The, the needle that I think you've threaded 
so beautifully in the pieces that it's obviously, I mean, never mind the quotes, it's so, the piece is so obviously concerned with Beethoven and, 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 uh, and makes use of Beethoven, and yet it doesn't for a second sound like anything but you. I mean, it's so recognizable as your voice. It's just, it's just this, the kind of the launching pad clearly was Beethoven. Well, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to hear it too. Yeah, and me it's too. Soon. <laughs> I know it's exciting. It's like, yeah. and I have this is the the fifth of these five commissions. It's always like the most amazing moment when like suddenly this piece comes into being, you know. And I, you know, I've, I mean, I, you've been. It's been in your mind for years, but it's been in, in my life for months and months. And mm. like all of a sudden, the first orchestra rehearsal. It's really, it's like, it's an incredible thing to get to, to sort of be present and even involved for a piece sort of coming to, to life for the first time. I wonder if we should maybe open it up to any questions, if anyone wants to. I think there's someone from the hall with a, yes. Um, I do have a specific question, but I was just doing a little bit of research on yourself, Mr. Biss, and I was pleasantly surprised to find out you're the son of Miriam Freed, yes. who, who came up a lot when I was uh, finding the, trying to find the better uh, recordings of classical mu music all those years ago, and yourself, I was pleasantly surprised, Mr. Lee, that you were appointed violist under Carrier, uh, yeah. who whose concert, whose uh, last London performance I was at. But I did. But the the question I wanted to ask is that um, with Beethoven, I've never known a chap, a person, to have gone stone deaf in the whole of Western art, and I'm asking about. Beethoven's father, because he was very rough with his son, whether he boxed him quite a lot around the head and the ears. What do you think? What's your thoughts on that? I mean, it's hard to say. I think it, anything I would say would be completely speculative. Um, the, the, the facts that we know are that, yes, Beethoven's father was incredibly rough with him, and yes, he began to lose his hearing much earlier than I think people often realize. I mean, the Heiligenstadt Testament is written when he was 30, 31. Um, but, you yeah. know, I think trying to, like, go back two centuries and reconstruct a medical history, I don't know. But certainly, um, I think the the rough treatment at the hands of his father was uh, one of the formative experiences of, of for Beethoven and, and, and had a huge effect on his personality. And, I mean, he had other profound medical issues other than the deafness, which may have all been interlinked. It's just very, very difficult to say. Um, on the subject of Beethoven's deafness, um, I know quite a lot of the music, but I wonder whether you as a professional musician recognise a, a different tone and a different style when you identify it of being his going deaf that he couldn't perform anymore. I mean, I just noticed in the, the last two, in the Opus 101, uh, he's so uninhibited, mm. as the same with the with the late quartets and the late piano, uh, piano sonatas. You, know, you hear boogie-woogie, you hear music, as he said, which is not for our time. Yeah. Do you see this, can you identify this as a professional player of this and a professional um, uh, composer of a different style which is there from that date? Yeah, that's uh, a very interesting question because uh, a couple of years ago I did a project here in, in London with the City of London Symphonia and together with the historian Sir Christopher Clark, who we looked at, first of all, early Beethoven before he, or up to the point where he went to Vienna and then 
he explored the aspects of the deafness, including sort of aspects of diagnosis, um, coming back to your question, and, and that sort of thing. But he, he found a graph somewhere where some music, uh, musicologist, Boffin, had actually gone through and, and counted frequency of notes, um, not only how often they come, but also what frequencies they had. And indeed, in the earlier stages of more profound deafness, the actual sort of range that he used apparently did diminish somewhat. And then later on, once he perhaps it, it had to do with developing techniques whereby he could still work and also just developing the ability to hear what it, what it was he was, or notate what it was he was hearing. I mean, he had this kind of canopy over the piano especially made so that he could pound away and hear things but I'm sure it also then he he relied more and more on inner ear and and, and musical memory and and so on and I do think there then the imagination not only the range came back but also then the musical imagination just went off yeah. as we as we hear in the late quartets the late sonatas I think there's something definitely in that yeah yeah, I, I, it's really interesting. I mean, in one sense, I think some of the qualities that we might imagine to be connected to the deafness, like the, his incredible ability to suspend time. Yeah. I think you listen to the slow movement of Opus 2, number 3, and it's kind of there already. That is very true. Yeah. yeah. But, but in another way, I think Beethoven was... Um, straining against sort of the rules of classicism his whole life. I mean, he, he, I, I think that one of the stories of the development of his... Um, of, you know, over the course of a few decades is moving from the pieces being kind of top-heavy, having, you know, big muscular first movements and then serious slow movements and then becoming lighter towards eventually the late periods, everything is moving inexorably towards the end. And I think maybe he developed even more courage to abandon norms yeah. when he was kind of uh, involuntarily insulated from sound, you know, from the yeah. other music. And then the ex exploration took on form. Just Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yes, I have a question, I'm, and I'm glad I got the uh, microphone immediately. Yes. Uh, yeah, the question is, you talked about Mozart and, and Beethoven being two very different personalities, yeah. very different musical universes, but surely there's a lot of continuity uh, with Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven, because one can hear some Haydn yes. in, in the first two sonatas you played. Isn't that right? I so think, how do you see the continuities working themselves I out? think as, person, as personalities, uh, between the three of them, Haydn and Beethoven are probably the ones who had the most in common. I think the sense of play and wit, I mean, of course, there's a huge amount of play in Mozart, but it's different. It's yeah. somehow theatrical in a different kind of way. Whereas, I mean, Haydn just delighted in sort of his ability to sort of come up with an infinite number of ideas. Mm. Uh, and that's something that I think Beethoven also, Beethoven loved to kind of sh shock his audience in that way. That I hear as being a very much a Haydn value. And, and there is a kind of an almost a prayerful quality in some Haydn that I hear in, in Beethoven as well. Mozart, I really think, occupies such a very different space. I mean, in terms of, I would be curious to know if this has the ring of truth to you, but I always feel that Mozart is as a theatrical, as a dramatic composer, essentially. He's very, he has this unbelievable psychological acuity about how people behave, and he describes it in sound, in a very clear-eyed, kind of uncompromising, um, um, 
unsentimental way. Whereas Beethoven is an idealist. He doesn't accept anything as it is. He wants everything to be, uh, you know, uh, um, the best of all possible worlds. The best of all possible yeah. worlds in sharp contrast mm. to the one he inhabited, yeah. So I find that there's a kind of a really fundamental difference between how they, they approach life and therefore music. But certainly, I mean, when you hear the, the Haydn sonatas as well, which don't get played nearly enough, in my amazing. opinion, there's, there are very strong links there too and, and a kind of audacity and a, and a sort of orchestral aspect to it as well Sport, which you don't sportage. actually yeah. get yeah. so much in the in the mozart piano sonatas for example to to sort of stick with the the keyboard, the keyboard genre for a moment yeah. for the modern mind uh, beethoven sonatas are often considered more interesting than his symphonies and or concertos and what why do you think that is um i'll start um very, very interested to what brett has to say about it i don't know if i would say that they're more interesting i i i think I would say two things. I think, first of all, there is, well, three things. First of all, the, the, the piano is Beethoven's instrument. So there is a certain level of intimacy that he has with it. And um, I think there is, again, an intimacy just inherent in the fact that there's one person playing that means the music is more likely to be more personal um, than symphonic music. But I think a huge factor is that the, the sonatas were not really performed mm. in his lifetime, um, which is a great shame in the sense of, you know, more people would have gotten to know them. But I think it probably made him feel less inhibited because if you think about it, the symphonies needed to be playable and they needed to be understandable by contemporary audiences, otherwise they would fail. But the stakes were kind of lower, you know, if the, if the, yeah. if the sonatas were too hard for uh, pianists of the day, and if they were too complicated and too kind of experimental to be, un, you know, understood, none, there weren't really going to be that many consequences. And so I think maybe his imagination was more unleashed in the sonatas. That's my theory. I mean, they certainly do come across as a kind of laboratory, don't they? Mm. Um, but actually, I, I was also curious to ask you about that too, because I mean, then they were sold. They were they were yeah. obviously uh, of of financial significance. Yeah. In fact, the Opus Forty Nine ones were were then offered to a publisher by his brother, yeah. and led to a huge argument. I understand, but um, usually did. Nevertheless, I mean, I must say then as, a, as an orchestral musician, so I've spent much more time playing the, the, the Beethoven symphonies, um, that they, they are absolutely as revolutionary yeah. um, to, the, to the world of music. Perhaps they're, they're structural on the, on the outside, the, the structures don't look as daringly different, perhaps, certainly, as the, the late sonatas and the late quartets. But the, the revolution came in, in the, the sound world and the amount of power and energy that he then put into the orchestra. The, you know, it's the first music that sounds or can sound belligerent, for example, or, or just, you know, a kind of heroism yeah. uh, and triumph that was just, you know, not known, even even yeah. compared to the, the the great operas of of Mozart, and then obviously the 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 last movement of the ninth sort of blew the whole form apart as well. Even though a lot of people 
don't like the last movement of the ninth, but I think it's fantastic. Oh. <laughs> I know I, that is, of course, true. I don't, I, I, my comment was not in any way meant to diminish the symphonies. No, I mean, no. and I mean, I, I say this as someone who adores the first two symphonies, but I still, when I hear the Eroica, even after having heard it dozens of times, from the beginning, I think, oh my God. I mean, it's, I just it's shocking. I can't yeah. believe that yeah. that happened, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and they, they allowed him to explore that other aspect of it, that, that kind of, you know, obsessive side. I mean, you know, the the, the timpani parts alone in the in yeah. the symphonies are just kind of like nothing that had been, you know, there before that before him. Or you know, him shouting the key of the piece at you for about three minutes at the end. You know, yeah. twenty thirty five C major chords. Yeah. However, everybody is at the end. Yeah. Hi there. Um, you've obviously studied the Beethoven sonatas in profound detail. Uh, your performances always show a wonderful degree of spontaneity. I was wondering, is that spontaneity something you bring to all music, or is there something about the many-sided nature of Beethoven's music that especially encourages that? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I, I do think that a sense of spontaneity is a quality that I value very highly in general. I think one of the biggest challenges of being a performer is that you have to know the music you know, really well, ideally, um, but that you want to convey a sense of discovery um, when you perform it. And I, I, so I work really hard. That's one of the things I think about a lot when I practice is that my work on the piece expands the possibilities rather than shrinks them. Um, but I do think that, I mean, Brett just used the word, word laboratory to describe these sonatas. And there is this sense of him, because he, you know, 32 sonatas kind of, reinvented the form 31 times, I think maybe there is something about this music that uh, encourages it particularly. But I don't know, when I play a Mozart concerto, I think that the sense of delight at the, tur the turns the music takes is something that I still you know, would really want to convey in playing it. So it's, it is maybe cr across the board. But you know, as with all other things, it's heightened in Beethoven. <laughs> I was curious how you approached this whole project in how uh, you would pick the individual sonatas to play in each evening. Is there like a somehow overall rationale behind it or just a gut feeling or something? So in general, I think because I find the variety of these sonatas so astonishing, that's kind of what I'm aiming for and, you know, above all is to showcase that. Um, but I will say in the case of this program, I, I, I do one thing which I don't think is the case in any of the other programs, which is I play two sonatas which are consecutive, Opus 90 and 101, because I do think there is something about this extraordinary ambiguity with which Opus 90 ends, which is maybe the perfect way into 101. If I was a little more courageous, I would just keep my hands on the keyboard and just go right into it. Um, but that was something, I, I somehow thought that Opus 90, which is... Um, one of the one of these pieces he wrote in that period that I wonder if that's the period you were talking about where the deafness was not complete yet and the, the frequencies were Ooh, I, I think by then he would have been right quite quite well on profoundly the deaf. Yeah, yeah, I mean but getting, I, getting there. I do find the sonatas of that period to, to reflect a certain I don't want to say insecurity, but um, there's a, there's a little, some kind of a modesty about them in terms of trying uh, uh, you know their scope at least where that he's he's he knows he's on the way somewhere, but he's not quite sure where it is yet. And then 101 is really the first of the the pieces which you know just completely burst out of the seams. And so Opus 97 seems like the ideal way into it. And then the first half, the two big pieces, 
I think really cover the, in, the entire spectrum of character, uh, which is usually what I'm looking to do. I apologize to everyone, I have a slightly frivolous question, but um, Beethoven famously found it difficult to resolve, you know, thrashing through ideas and ending pieces, and this goes to you both, one as a performer, or both as performers and as a composer, but what do you think of Dudley Moore's uh, pieces on uh, ending Beethoven? Yeah, I mean, the, the Dudley, actually I was speaking with Piers Lane the other night, the wonderful um, Australian pianist, and he just played the Dudley Moore Did he? as an encore <laughs> in Melbourne, uh, as an encore to playing the, the first Beethoven concerto. Um, I mean, it, is, it is wonderful. And I, I, I think the thing that always strikes me about both that um, moment of Dudley Moore and also his, his wonderful Britain um, song ripoff is, is just the sad fact that you won't, find things like that happening on YouTube nowadays. Um, you know, that, that, that kind of level of, of humour on a, on a national TV comedy show just would be, um, you know, lost in translation. But I, I love it. It's wonderful. There's this kind of wonderful, again, audacity and, and actually playing on that very same riff that you're talking about, yeah. the, the kind of pounding away at... Five one, five one. I haven't heard it in a long time, but I remember when I heard it. I thought, like most of the best humor, it's it's hilarious because it kind of gets at something pretty essential about him. Yeah. Uh, the world is falling apart. Has Beethoven two hundred and fifty come in time to save us, or is it going to, or is Beethoven going to be the theme tune of our self destruction? Oh. <laughs> um, well, I don't know that I have any particular confidence that music can save. Um, Hitler appropriated Beethoven famously. Um, but I do know that speaking personally, um, spending my life with this music has made me better at listening. It's made me more empathetic. It's um, forced me to, it's made me a, a bigger person, I would say. It's forced me to acknowledge limitations. It's, um, I, I, I shudder to think about who I would be personally without this music. So from that, I extrapolate that music, and especially the greatest of music, nourishes us and teaches us in some way that matters. Don't confuse that with optimism. <laughs> um, but I guess what I am saying is I feel like it's as essential for human uh, growth and for us to be decent people as food and sleep. I wonder if that might be the right note on, oh, <laughs> yeah, one more question. Thank you. As, as a non-musician, I found myself asking this evening as you played five sonatas, one after the other, and with barely a kind of minute between, you know, one and the other, um, how you managed to kind of sort of ring fence your engagement with one, 
from your engagement with the one that comes straight after? And is that a question of temperament? Is it a question of technique? Is it a question of long hours in the rehearsal room? How, how do you do it? Yeah, I think it's a question of, the, of, of what happens in the practice that I think, I think when, like so many musicians, when I was younger, I made the mistake of practicing by rote. I remember, I have the memory of like having the newspaper sitting on the, on the music stand when I was, you know, like 20 years old in school. And like, I knew I had to practice, but I didn't feel like it. So I was just, you know, uh, but I, I've long since stopped that. Um, but I, when I practice, I really, really try to sort of make it um, a joint activity in terms of, you know, not just muscle, muscle memory, but also the mind and the, and the heart and the soul. And so I, hopefully all of that work brings me closer and closer to kind of some kind of essence of the piece so that I guess maybe that shrinks the time that you need to prepare to get into the new, uh, the, the character of a piece, even if it's very, very different from the previous one. And again, I think part of the reason I'm drawn to this body of music is that I relish the variety of character. I don't know if there's anything analogous. Well, I mean, it was interesting that you, you mentioned earlier that the end of 90 yeah. could almost just go straight into 101, and I just wondered whether, on, on, I find it a very interesting question, that whether you feel the same about the other, you know, the pieces in the first half as well. I mean, obviously, there's a kind of a hiatus before Opus 2, because yeah. it's kind of a different beast too but the, the first the first two kind of belong Could have together, together. Too. yeah I, I hadn't thought about that what i would say is that um i love the pastoral at the beginning of a concert mm. because it comes out of silence mm. and i often sort of think about you know there, it, if, for those who don't remember it begins with this sort of pedal tone in the bass of d's you know and i sort of think of that d as something which just like existed in nature forever mm. and it just mm. became audible at that at that moment um Tonight it was it was uh, preceded by a mobile phone, but uh, <laughs> these things happen. Um, but yeah, that so that that I that that is a in a sense a segue from nothing to the pastoral that I do think about. But the segues between the sonatas and the first half was no, I never thought about linking them particularly. Well, I think is there another question? Well, the premiere is in uh, two weeks now in Sweden, though, and I don't know if I'm supposed to say... Well, it will be played in London soon, I guess yeah. I should say. Uh, There's a kind of press embargo on the big festival uh, at which it will be <laughs> presented, <laughs> um, presented by a national broadcaster, but... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't hear that I'm sure yet. nobody cracked that code, <laughs> yes, yeah. No, no that, was, yeah. that was pretty secretive, yeah. yeah. So, soon is the answer. Well, thank you all so much for coming to the concert for staying, and thank you, Brett, particularly, for doing this, yeah.